throwback thriller which brings nothing new to a crowded genre and has little to say along the way. They don't make them like this anymore, and to be honest, they probably shouldn't. That's Dan Jolin of Empire, his damning review of The Little Things, currently on HBO Max, starring Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. Three Academy Award winners. That is some serious star power right now on HBO Max. I also went back and rewatched for the 24th anniversary of two films from 1997, As Good As It Gets, starring Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear, Cuba Gooding Jr., and Donnie Brasco, one of my all-time favorites, starring Al Pacino and Johnny Depp. In addition, uh, also news involving Cloris Leachman at 94, she passes away. The latest in Army Hammer and his Godfather theory, while Spielberg thinks movies will return to theaters, and the Mount Rushmore Dustin Hoffman movies. The big news is this, though. Marks and Simon want to know the guess. I told you it was a badass, and it is. Two Distant Strangers, which is at Two Distant Strangers on IG. That's the number two, at Two Distant Strangers, D-I-S-T-A-N-T-S-T-R-A-N-G-E-R-S, and at Two Distant Film on Twitter. That's T-W-O-D-I-S-T-A-N-T-F-I-L-M. It's a new, terrific short, which I think is going to get nominated for an Academy Award. It's coming soon. You can check out the thought-provoking trailer, twodistantstrangers.com, T-W-O-D-I-S-T-A-N-T-S-T-R-A-N-G-E-R-S. The plot is simple. Cartoonist Carter James' repeated attempts to get home to his dog are thwarted by a recurring deadly encounter that forces him to relive the same awful day over and over again. We're recording this on Groundhog Day, so yes... It is a modernized, social injustice-inspired adaptation of Groundhog Day, courtesy of Emmy winner Trayvon Free. And how about these names? NBA superstar Kevin Durant, Sean Combs, which, by the way, I saw P. Diddy did uh, Scott Feinberg's podcast, Hollywood Reporter, Pulp Fiction and multiple Oscar-nominated producer Lawrence Bender, Adam McKay, music artist Joey Badass, Jesse Williams, and more. And that's why huge news today on Cinephile, Lawrence Bender. That's right, the guy who produced... Goodwill Hunting, Inglorious Bastards, and Pulp Fiction is going to join us and Joey Badass. That's right. It will be Joseph Engelbrecht's uh, name if he goes incognito. Joey Badass himself. This guy, he's a Brooklyn native. He's been on Mr. Robot. I mean, Wu-Tang, an American saga, and is a huge rapper. I mean, Joe is a big-time fan of Joey Badass. He's got 2 million followers on Instagram. So this is a huge episode today. Joe, this might be as good as it gets. Lawrence Bender and Joey Badass, that's big time. Oh, huge. When worlds collide. I, I'm, I'm so excited for this interview. I'm excited for the listeners. Joey Badass, he's now extending his creative range into the cinema and Lauren Spender with all the stories. Cannot wait. Yeah, Joey Badass, one of the founding members of the Hip Hop Collective Pro Era. Fine line between old school hip hop, contemporary rap, total of 19 singles, three mixtapes. He's got an EP. All-American badass. I mean, this is awesome. And as I mentioned, Bender, uh, he's not only produced those films which are Academy Award nominated, but he's, he's boys with Tarantino, to put it quite simply. He's uh, produced not just Pulp Fiction, but Kill Bill, Volume 1 and 2, and Inglorious Bastards. He's also produced three documentary films, most notably An Inconvenient Truth. That's right, Al Gore. That won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Features. So trust me, Bender and Badass. That's the way to go here on Cinephile. As always, please go to Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe, rate, and review. We encourage all of you to give a little love. I rank my movies out of format beliefs. I encourage you to rank us out of five stars and uh, leave a review if you're so inclined. As always, we appreciate the feedback. You can also go on Twitter, Adnan S. Verk, or you can go to Cinephile Pod. Uh, KDMDJDJ, love the pod. Don't be afraid to go over an hour. 
We listen because we love it. Why would we want it shorter? Keep it up. I love it. Four-way police, five-star review. Okay. You know what? Let's empty the tank here. Kick it off first with the film, which I mentioned off the top, The Little Things. So I'm a little worried here because I try not to get poisoned by outside sources, two which are very tough for me to do. One is the calendar. And as soon as I see any movie being released in January, February, or March, I say, well, that's a telltale sign. It's not going to be any good because in a, in a general year, the popcorn films come out post you know, Memorial Day weekend. They go until the end of August. August is kind of dead. But I mean, if it's a big movie to make some money, May, June, July. And if it's Oscar bait, it's September to December. Over the years, September has now become a wash. It's more like October, November, December, two and a half months. But now, as we all know, with the Oscars being pushed to late April, well, actually, all movies that are going to be eligible for the Oscars, I believe the window is now end of February. So when I see the little things, I go, oh, they're dumping it in January and it's got all the star power. It must stink. But then I say, well, actually, it could be an awards contender because now with the rules changed, this is like a movie coming out in November. So it, it kind of flummoxes me. The other point is this. I don't try to read reviews until after I've seen the film. And I like to dig into you know my favorite people and go to Rotten Tomatoes, read the blurbs, etc. With the little things, I just saw initially going in, it was like 48% Rotten Tomatoes. I said, oh, man. This is, again, furthering my thought that this is going to be a dud. It's gotten subpar reviews. 60%, again, is average on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, And, again, it's being pushed on HBO Max. Now, not being in theaters, that's because of what's happening in the world. So with all that being said, I'm going in here with diminished expectations. And lo and behold, I actually liked it. Deputy Sheriff Joe Deacon joins forces with Sergeant Jim Baxter to search for a serial killer who's terrorizing Los Angeles. As they track the culprit, Baxter is unaware that the investigation is dredging up echoes of Deke's past, uncovering disturbing secrets that could threaten more than his case. The biggest reason to enjoy the little things is the star power of Denzel Washington, Rami Malek, and Jared Leto. I've been on record as being offended. I will continue to be irate that Rami Malek won an Academy Award for his performance in Bohemian Rhapsody. I thought it was a very average movie. I thought his performance was decent. I don't think it was Academy Award uh, nomination-wise, much less winning. I thought it was a joke, quite frankly. And the fact that he won the Oscar, doesn't even sing the music. At least my man Joaquin Phoenix sang Johnny Cash's music. I know Jimmy Fox, lip-synced in Ray, but still, great performance. My point is, wasn't big on Bohemian Rhapsody or Rami Malek winning an Oscar. And Joe is a big Queen fan. He can tell you the movie was very sanitized, a very PG look at a band that was anything but that. Having said that, I hear Mr. Robot's great. And I like the fact he's got a unique look to him. So he's in the movie playing the straight arrow cop. And then Denzel's always Denzel. He always brings it, even in subpar material. And I'm not a fan of Roman J. Israel. Again, if I'm going to have more gripes, the fact he got nominated for Best Actor for that movie is also something I can't get behind. But Denzel's Denzel. You cannot deny the star power of this guy every single time. He's going to bring it, even if, like I said, the material is beneath him. And the New York Times, for good reason, recently named him as the most compelling actor, the best actor of the 21st century. And then you got Jared Leto, who I still remember way back in the day, my so-called life, playing the teen heartthrob that every teenage girl was in love with. And I think he was deserving of his Oscar for American, uh, whatever the hell it was, American Buyers Club, Dallas Buyers Club. That's right, Dallas Buyers Club. But I also think he's a strange dude. Like, I watch him in these movies and go, God, I bet she's just a weird guy. Like, I couldn't imagine Jared Leto having a normal conversation. Maybe he is. Maybe he's as normal as uh, apple pie. But he seems like a weirdo. And whenever I watch these movies, I go, hmm, not sure how much he's acting. Having said that, every time Jared Leto's on screen, he's compelling. Suicide Squad was a complete waste of time, absolute drudgery. 
But I did like Leto as the Joker. I know it's not a Joker that gets a lot of love. The Joker that gets love is Heath Ledger and Jack Nicholson and perhaps Joaquin Phoenix. But I actually thought Leto was, you know, compelling as the Joker. Definitely disturbing. Off air, he was really in character, method acting. He would send gifts to other members of the crew. When I say gifts, I mean a dead rat in a box and, wait for it, a used condom. That's who Jared Leto is. When he's on this in a Suicide Squad, I don't know if it was Margot Robbie, but he sent somebody a used condom. So with that as backstory, he's pretty effective as a creep and a potential killer. Moloch, as I said, fairly straightforward role, and Denzel is playing his role. If you think this sounds like a movie you've seen before, it probably is. Sounds a lot like Seven. Denzel Washington famously turned down the role of Somerset, which went to Morgan Freeman. And here he's doing his best Somerset impression. Old, grizzled vet, trying to step away, damaged personal life. You've seen the cliches, but again, in Denzel's hands, he makes it watchable, if not entertaining. And Moloch playing the Brad Pitt role, young cop who thinks he has it figured out, not clearly as, as edgy as Pitt's character. It's not quite the same, but again, it falls within that precinct. And if you've seen enough cop movies, you've seen stories like this. So it brings up the question, if it got subpar reviews, and I'm describing it as somewhat hackneyed and derivative, then why did I enjoy it? For a few reasons, one of which is it feels like a retro movie. Now, as a child of the 90s, I love 90s movies, and this feels like it should have come out right after Seven. So I enjoyed the retro nostalgic feel of watching a movie that I feel like I was probably watching when I was 18, and I love the movie Seven. Even if it's an inferior version, I appreciate what they're going for. I cannot deny the star power of this trio. If there were subpar actors doing this, I think the movie wouldn't be that good. But because you've got three great actors, I think they elevate the material. I also thought it was very atmospheric. I enjoyed the cinematography. I thought it was dark and moody. And most of all, I appreciated the ending. I don't want to give away the ending, but I like the fact that it was on a Hollywood shed, we say. Uh, morally ambiguous. Risky. Maybe some would argue it's not as risky because we've seen anti-heroes before and unresolved endings. But it definitely owes a debt of gratitude to Seven and Zodiac. Those films are superior, but this film reminded me of it. Therefore, I give it three rape beliefs. I'm sure many will disagree. I've already seen some tweets of people being mad at me saying, how the hell could you like it? But honestly, I kind of did. Joe? And then I, I I was in the same boat as you where I, I try not to read reviews. I try to go in blind to movies, but I saw the 48%. I didn't know what to think. And overall, I agree with you. But I, I for me, it, ju it just didn't do too much for me because I just felt like it was a movie that I had seen before. It was kind of in line with, with the first review you read to open the show where, you know, just kind of what, what you said, a little derivative, but you bring up a good point about the ending. And you're right, it's not a conventional Hollywood type ending. It is ambiguous. It does leave you hanging, kind of a little unsettling. But I, I have to tell you about Jared Leto. This is a testament to how weird he is. When I was working for Entertainment Weekly, Adnan, we did an interview with Jared Leto. We had a strict 25-minute uh, uh, session with him. He took 10 minutes to adjust the lighting. He was like, don't worry, I do this for a living, and he took 10 minutes to adjust the lighting, and it totally <laughs> ate into our time. He kept going back to the camera because they were filming it for online and uh, looking at it, sitting back in his seat, looking at it, and then kept changing the lighting. It was the weirdest, oddest thing in the world and I feel like when he got this role he was like this is another weird character I can play so that's just my take on it but uh, I, overall I did like it I would give it two and a half maple leaves I don't know if I would recommend it 
to people, but it is something that if they did see, I would be eager to have that conversation. And then really quickly on your note about Rami Malek, sanitized is the right word for the Queen biopic. I don't know how he won the Oscar that year. The PG Queen is what I call that movie. So that that's my take on the little things. PG Queen. Two and a half is probably the right or great. I think three is probably generous for me, but I did enjoy it. And uh, listen, it's one of those movies I'm sure if it comes across cable, I mean, it's already on cable right now on HBO, but I would kind of enjoy some elements of it. But I, I, it's not one of those I'm passionate about. I totally get it. If someone listening goes, are you kidding? I've seen this movie before. There's nothing fresh about it. Uh, Anthony Lane of The New Yorker. Washington is the only actor we got, I reckon, who can get away with this stuff. Uh, Justin Chang. It induces the strange sensation of encountering cliches before they were cliches. See, here's my point with the retro nostalgia of opening an unusually well-preserved time capsule or taking a trip down a corpse-strewn memory lane. And Ty Burr of the Boston Globe, who I've often said is one of my favorite film critics ever. At over two hours, the movie still slogs its way to an unsatisfying conclusion. It's hardly a rush hour train wreck, but it might have been more fun if it had been. <laughs> Ty's great. Check out his work in the Boston Globe. Previous guest, by the way, also on Cinephile. He knows I'm a big fan of his. All right, a couple other flicks here. I, I got to get to Badass and Bender. As good as it gets. It's uh, probably my favorite romantic comedy. People often ask me these things. You know, they want me to say The Notebook. I've never seen The Notebook. But I, you want me to give you a romantic comedy? I love As Good As It Gets. Melvin Udall, starring Jack Nicholson, is an obsessive-compulsive writer of romantic fiction who's rude to everyone he meets, including his gay neighbor, Simon, played by Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear. But when he has to look after Simon's dog, he begins to soften and, if still not completely over his problems, finds he can conduct a relationship with the only waitress, Helen Hunt, at the local diner who will serve him. My first thought when I watch movies that I love that I haven't seen in a long time is, does it hold up? And it still does. And I think, again, a lot of this is star power and terrific acting. Nicholson knocks it out of the park as this OCD writer. Helen Hunt, I thought, was perfectly cast as this harried waitress who is overwhelmed by her sickly son. Kinnear, after making the transition from Talk Soup, memorably on the Larry Sanders show, laughs and, oh, yeah, I actually got an Academy Award nomination for this movie. It's pretty easy, this whole acting thing. Cuba Gooding Jr. playing his gay friend, Frank Sack, small role, but good. Skeet Ulrich, who has always uh, looked to me as a Johnny Depp wannabe, also has a small role in the film as well. But I just think it's so well written by James L. Brooks. He's a guy who's had Academy Award success with something like Terms of Endearment, and here I get broadcast news. And here, there's a reason why Nicholson won Best Actor, Helen Hunt won Best Actress. It's just a great script. Sometimes it's as simple as that. It's a great script, and you have charming lead actors, and it's sweet, and it's funny, and there's a host of one-liners which are incredible. I can't even repeat some of them because I feel like they might offend somebody. Oh, what the hell. The one scene where the <laughs> pretty, uh, pretty assistant in his literary agency asks him, and this is a guy clearly who's a misanthrope. Like, if you thought Daniel Day-Lewis hated people and there will be blood, Nicholson's in that same family. She says to him, how do you write women so well? And he goes, I think of a man, and I take away reason and accountability. This is who this guy is. Later on, when him and Helen Hunt have that great scene at the restaurant where she threatens to leave, she goes, unless you give me a cop on, I'm walking out right now. He says, I hate pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate about pills. The night after you came to my house and you, you know what you said, I started taking those pills. And Hunt says, I really don't get how there's a compliment for me. And Nicholson really milks the moment perfectly. And the camera doesn't quite push in. It almost feels like it is, but he's kind of just holding the, the movement. The camera stays. And he looks up and says, you make me want to be a better man. Then cue the score. Camera pushes in a little bit on Helen Hunt who gives a really sweet smile and says, that might be the greatest compliment of my life. 
And Nicholson flashes that Jack Nicholson wicked grin, gives a little bit of a fist pump and says, well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming it just enough to get you from walking out. It's a beautiful, sweet, understated scene. Uh, and of course, the ending is amazing. You know, she's trying to tell him there's no way these guys can be together. You know, you're, you're old. You don't know what you want. I've got this sick kid. You know, you're an angry person. You're blah, blah, blah. He goes, hang on a second. And he gives this beautiful monologue. He goes, I might be the only person alive who realizes when you walk by that I just met the greatest person alive. And everything you do and everything you are, you say things that are straight and true and meaningful. And when you talk about your son, Spencer, Spence, I can see the whole world brighten around you. And he goes, and when the fact that I get the fact that you are the greatest woman alive makes me feel good about me. I mean, I just recited that by memory, and I had not seen the movie in a long time, but that's how good that speech is, how well-written it is, and how well-delivered it is by Jack Nicholson. It's a great, great film. I love it. I know some people might say, ah, it's a little schmaltzy, a little sentimental for my taste. Well, that's a rom-com, okay? What do you want it to be? That, this is how these things are. Uh, Dwayne Burge, a Hollywood reporter, with terrific lead performances by Jack Nicholson as a demonic novelist, and Helen Hunt as a Manhattan waitress. As good as it gets is as good as mature adult entertainment gets on the silver screen. Also from Jason Bailey of Vice, on one hand, it's Brooks's film that most portrays his TV sitcom roots. It's also one of his more ambitious works, packing in subplots and subjects by the handful, indicative of a filmmaker who seems to genuinely struggle with the confines of the genre. As good as it gets, I loved it, Joe. You? Oh, it's it's such a fantastic movie. I hadn't seen it until you raved about it a few months ago on Cinephile, so I went ahead and watched it, and it was everything. I, I didn't expect it to be that good. The first time I watched Sherry Met Sally, I'm not a big rom-com guy, and I left saying that is a fantastic movie, and I feel the same way about this one. The one thing I will say about the film is um, it, it, you're right because it, it's able to take this lighthearted material I don't want to say sitcom-y, but like just light material and still show the humanity. And Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear do such a good job at conveying that. So I, I can't not recommend this movie enough, Adnan. Yeah, I, I also love Kinnear. You're right. I mean, he's playing the gay neighbor, which could have been an easy cliche. And a couple of times he gives a couple of Nicholson impressions, but he's funny. He's actually got a really sweet line, too. You know, Nicholson's character, you know this from a mile away, he's going to be this crank who's going to start to show, if not a heart of gold, some humanity. And early on, he's, you know, he's tossing homophobic slurs and one-liners, and there's only so much that Kinnear can take. But gradually, he shows a little bit more of a, a softer side. And, you know, he, he, he literally opens his home to Kinnear, and Kinnear's character is really well-stated. He goes, you know what, Melvin? And he looks like he's about to cry, and he goes, you overwhelm me. It's a really sweet line and a good line reading. You know, sometimes it's not just a script. It's how you deliver the line. So good call on Kinnear. I thought he was really good in a role that could easily have been, you know, flamboyant or over the top. But he grounds it. He makes it strong. He makes it his own. And he also was nominated for an Academy Award. A film that I wish had been nominated for some Academy Awards, that'd be Donnie, Gra Donnie Brasco, Joseph D. Pistone, Johnny Depp. FBI agent who has infiltrated one of the major New York mafia families. He's living under the name Donnie Brasco. He develops a relationship with mob hitman Benjamin Lefty Ruggiero, Al Pacino, in one of his greatest performances. In order to get deeper undercover, he ends up developing a real friendship with the mafioso. As the relationship develops, Pistone must decide whether or not to complete his job, knowing that it will lead to the murder of his new friend. Here's the biggest shock about Donnie Brasco. It's directed by Mike Newell. Who's Mike Newell? He did Four Weddings and a Funeral. Like, this is one of those shocks that you go, wow, this guy's a director. Because Four Weddings and a Funeral, speaking of all-time great rom-coms, 
is completely different in tone to this mob movie. So I I, I gotta look this up. How the hell did Mike Newell even get this movie? Why was he considered? But I thought he was terrific. I don't really don't know what his filmography has been since then. But I hear Mike Newell, the first thing I think of is Four Weddings and a Funeral, and he did a hell of a job three years later with Donnie Brasco. I remember listening to the director commentary years ago. He made an interesting point about Pacino. He goes, you know, I always knew he was a great actor. But what I remember is one of the first days on set, he was, he was picking out his own wardrobe and such, and he goes, the glasses were so key. If you haven't seen Donnie Brasco, you can Google it and just look at Pacino's face in it because he's got these glasses. And he goes, once Al picked out the perfect set of glasses, it was so important to the character. And he understood. It's kind of like Olivia would say, you're on the outside looking in, right? The character's about the, even the jacket Lefty wears, the way it has that fur at the top. Um, he goes, it really kind of got the essence of the character. You know, his character, Al Pacino has made a legendary career playing mobsters, whether it's Michael Corleone, who's cool and... Uh, Tony Montana, who's uh, volcanic. Lefty's something different. Lefty's a grumpy old man. Lefty's a mobster, a lower echelon mafioso who's been passed over his whole life, who's pissed off. He could be like a guy working in a manufacturing ring who's saying, man, how come I keep getting passed over? And the way that Pacino was able just to get the glasses right, it was able to really kind of give the essence of the character. It makes me think of a great story Sidney Lumet tells, and Pacino's told it as well, which is on Dog Day Afternoon, Initially, the first couple of days, he was wearing glasses when he robs the bank. And Pacino goes to Lamette late one night. He goes, I got bad news. We got to reshoot everything. And Lamette goes, what do you mean? It's been great so far. He goes, no, we got to reshoot the whole thing. He goes, why? He goes, he shouldn't be wearing glasses. This guy wants to be recognized. He's doing this for the notoriety. People wear sunglasses when they want to hide. He wants the limelight. And Lamette goes, you're right. That's the whole point of the movie. So just a thought there as far as wardrobe and glasses, those things are so important. As I mentioned, Al's great in the movie because, again, with The Godfather, he's the guy in charge and he's just so methodical and ruthless. And in Scarface, he's just so unrelentingly entertaining. Well, here in Donnie Brasco, it is, and we don't get to use this word often enough, a great tragic comic performance. Lefty is funny and clownish in some ways. Forget about it. Cadillac's got a better car. Uh, the scene where he first intimidates Johnny Depp kind of bullies him. He's a fugazi. You're calling me a fugazi? You know, I, in all five boroughs, I'm known. My mother, when she walks down the block, everyone knows who she is. You ask anybody, anybody about Lefty from Mulberry Street. You're barking up the wrong tree, my friend. Like, he's coming off like this tough guy, but at the same time, as I said, he doesn't appear to be physically intimidating. But at some times, there's real elements of tragedy. When he opens up to Depp's character and shows his humanity and the sadness of his life, the fact his son is a junkie, the fact that he feels that he can't save him, the fact he feels passed over in his job. I mean, Lefty really has a lot of pathos. And it's because of Al's way to transmit that that he's a real impact in Johnny Depp's character. Now, I've not seen a Johnny Depp movie since I read that story previously involving him and his rather tumultuous relationship with his ex, Amber Heard. And there's a couple scenes here where he gets aggressive with his wife, Anne Heche. And it's tough to separate Johnny Depp, the actor, from what allegedly happened to Johnny Depp, the person. I mean, when he grabs her, I was like, oh, man, is this kind of who Johnny Depp is? So it's interesting. It was, it was hard for me to watch it and try to separate what is, I think, a great actor giving one of his best performances away from what I've now read about him and try to impact him. Having said that, he nails the duality of the character. You know, how could you be an FBI agent and try to buddy up with these people and yet try to stab them in the back? And I'm sure what happens to a lot of these law enforcement people, you go in there, you try to become best friends with these mobsters, and then after you're with them, day and night, 24-7, month after month, you develop a friendship. 
You develop a camaraderie. And in this case, he develops a really strong attachment to Lefty and really wants to look out for him. So I think it's a beautifully told story. The script, again, is great. Paul Atanasio, he's a great writer. God, he wrote Quiz Show, which I think is a brilliant film from 1994. Atanasio, I believe, also worked on Homicide Life on the Street, one of my favorite TV shows. And so, again, Donnie Brasco, it fits in that category of mob movies about a law enforcement agent who's working both sides. But it's also really funny. You know, when they go to Miami and Lefty's trying to get a boat and they're thinking about trying to infiltrate, there's some really good comic vignettes. And the supporting cast is nothing short of stellar. Michael Madsen, you all know from Tarantino films. Bruno Kirby, the late, again, comic actor here playing a mobster. And Heche, I mentioned, uh, James Russo's good. Even one of my favorite actors of all time, the great Paul Giamatti shows up in the movie. Giamatti's got two scenes in Donnie Brasco, but he's got arguably the most famous scene, which is when he asks Johnny Depp, what's forget about it? And Depp explains, you know, it means like Raquel Welch is one great piece of ass. Forget about it. But it also means like some food is good. Like, oh man, Mungina with peppers. Oh, forget about it. It also means like if someone pisses you off, you need to tell them to screw off. Like, ah, you got a small pecker. Forget about it. And sometimes it just means forget about it. And it cuts to Giamatti and he goes, forget about it. Like a really small indication of the great comic genius of Paul Giamatti is shown in the famous forget about it scene. Mick LaSalle of San Francisco Chronicle, a first-class mafia thriller that is also in its way a love story. Kim Newman of Empire, Depp and Pacino elevate this with two great performances, but they're helped by a solid script and a great supporting cast. And Todd McCarthy of Variety, its strength really lies in its ability to recognize grief in all of its raggedness and messiness and not shy away. Although perhaps familiar in its outer trappings, Pacino's fine work is the key to the film succeeding to the extent that it does. And the best scene of the movie is when Pacino knows the golden goose is up, the end is coming, the way that he very tenderly puts away the money, takes off his chain, puts away his rings uh, so that his wife can see them before he goes to his ultimate end. It is some of the most tender acting of his career. For a guy, again, who gets criticized for going over the top and going big, and I understand those are fair criticisms, Pacino's final scene in Donnie Brasco is certainly one for the ages. Joe, I'm appalled. You've never seen Donnie Brasco. I hope you rectify this wrong. I'm doing it right now, Adnan. I have it on right now. I'm watching it. I'm sorry I won't be available for the rest of the session. I'm sorry. This is a blind spot for me, but I mean, I, I was I was curious to see how you felt about watching Depp again, especially after those scenes you talked about. But is it fair? Would you call this kind of a companion piece to The Departed, or is that a fair assessment, or how, how would that compare and contrast? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting you mentioned that, because The Departed is also about, as you know, an FBI agent going undercover. But I think that, you know, that's more of a kind of a lean and mean crime story. It's much more cat and mouse. I thought it was much more plot dependent. You know, as Scorsese himself joked when he won Best Director, this is the first one I've made with an actual plot. Whereas Donnie Brasco to me felt like much more of a character piece. It's much more of a two-hander, an evolution, and a really um, thoughtful look at this character and both of their relationships, Lefty and Joe Pistone. You know, wise guy carries his bean on the outside. Get a pair of pants. It's in a fucking rodeo. Whereas The Departed has got these, you know, just supercharged electric performances with DiCaprio and Damon and Nicholson. And there's a lot of plot going on and, you know, double crossings, et cetera. So I would say The Departed is more of a busy film. But you're right. I, I could definitely see it as a companion piece, but that's more plot oriented. This is more character based and I think um, a little more thoughtful in different ways. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I just want to add one more note. Mike, Mike Noel, he did Mona Lisa Smile. 
He did um, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, but he hasn't really done anything in the last few years. His last feature was the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society. Have you heard of that movie? I have not. Ouch. Mike Newell, where have you gone? A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Mona Lisa Smile, I've never seen. I know it stars Julia Roberts, so I'm not generally crazy about. And uh, if you mean a Harry Potter film, I'm sure he's got a little bit of money tucked away. So maybe Mike's like, you know what? I've had a good run. I don't need to work, but I'm not familiar with that. Uh, but hopefully we'll get some more Mike Newell films one of these days. All right. After the break, Joey Badass, rapper turned actor and Oscar-winning producer Lawrence Bender, here to talk about their terrific new short film, Two Distant Strangers, plus entertainment news and the Mount Rushmore of Dustin Hoffman movies. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, there's a terrific film. It's called Two Distant Strangers. It's going to be hopefully nominated for uh, an Academy Award for Best Live Short, and it is a fantastic film. I'm so pleased we joined not only by Lawrence Bender, producer, but also Joey Badass, obviously recording artist of some renown and clearly a guy tipping his wall, toes in the water, so to speak, when it comes to cinema. Uh, Lawrence, I'll start with you. Listen, as I was saying to you off air, it really is powerful to me when you can send a message and make a message with a live action short. You know, I almost equate it to short stories. Yes, you can write a 300-page novel, but can you tell a story in 25 pages and really have it resonate? And you guys were able to do this with Two Distant Strangers. Tell me first and foremost, Lawrence, about your involvement with the project. Sure. Um, Wow. Well, we were um, quarantining, uh, as everyone was, um, and I happened to be quarantined Trayvon Free. Um, and his girlfriend, Zaria. And um, during that whole thing, you know, George Floyd happened and uh, I found myself out on the streets marching with Trayvon. Um, and, um, but you know, he, he just, he felt like he needed to do something, right? And he wrote this amazing piece. Um, and what's kind of cool is he's, he's down the hall. And uh, so he's like, hey man, I just wrote this. I said, wow. And he, he said, you want to read it? I said, sure. Then he started asking me, you know, about this, that, and the other. And I was like, shit, man, I'd love to help him make this. I'd love to produce this. But he hadn't asked me to do it. And um, finally, at one point, he goes, hey, man, would you like to produce this? I know you're busy. I said, God, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> and um, so anyway, that's how I got involved. Um, and we, that, he wrote it like in five days. That was the end of July. By the end of August, we had raised most of the money. Um, he started talking to Joey, I think it was sometime like in August, uh, and beginning of September, September, done posting a month later, done, done editing. I mean, picture any month later. I mean, everything happened super, super fast. Joey, how about for you? What was your involvement with the film? I was contacted. Uh, I got a call one day from my friend, uh, James Samuel. And, um, you know, he was, we were just, it really just started out as a catch up. He was actually doing a movie that he wanted me to be a part of, but um, I couldn't do to like, you know, just schedule issues or whatever. 
So, uh, you know, we started just talking a little bit and then he was telling me about his uh, friend Trayvon, who just wrote this uh, beautiful film by the name of Two Distant Strangers. And, and, and he was saying like, you know, how he could really see me playing the character. So, uh, you know, we pretty much did like a three-way FaceTime call and uh, Trayvon and I, we started building, having a, having a, a small dialogue about it. He sent me the script and, uh, you know, I read the script and it just fully resonated with me. I thought that it was definitely a role that um, was a part of my story, my own story, my own personal story. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was almost a no brainer for me. Yeah, it's amazing because as you guys are talking about the best things that cinema can do, what film can really do is it can really change people's lives and it can open people's minds and it can allow you to see a different slice of life. And what you've been able to do here, Joey, is take a topic, which as Lawrence said, is a hot topic with regards to social justice, police reform, et cetera. And yet you're not pounding people over the head with it. You're saying, hey, we're going to tell you a story. Here's what's happening every day. There's some comic elements, because again, I don't want to give it away, but there's an element of Groundhog Day. This guy's reliving the same day. Mm -hmm. and it has a very tragic ending, which he keeps being shot. But I right. think it's really important for you guys as filmmakers that you're telling a story which has a message, but at the same time, you're not beating people over the head. Was that something you were able to see from Trayvon's script, or was that something that you were able to develop uh, over the course of the film? Oh, yeah, no, Trayvon definitely uh, pretty much had the story there. And um, what I would say I do is I came in and I just kind of gave it my own interpretation. Because, you know, the way I like to look at it with every role that I play, um, you know, is me playing it. So a part of my character, like a part of like who I am really has to kind of adapt to the story or make the story adapt to me, if that makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. And, and Lawrence, it's interesting. You've had a real career of tapping into movies that hit the zeitgeist. Pulp Fiction is one of my favorite movies of all time. I'll never forget where I was, 16 years old. You had the whole roars coming from the Cannes Film Festival. Hey, there's something special here. Wait until you see Tarantino's follow-up. And it just hit like a rocket. Obviously, documentaries, Inconvenient Truth, etc. I think in this case, it's a matter of getting promotion, getting the word out. But I really feel that Two Distant Strangers has the appeal of being, as I said, not only topical, but something impactful. Was that something that for you, you realized that's why you were so eager to work with Trayvon? You know, Trayvon is such a beautiful man. Um, and um, I'm just, just honored to be able to call him a friend. And so I wanted to work with Trayvon, uh, but you know, he, the script was, he just wrote a really strong script. It's, and um, so, you know, it's a bit like, you know, it's funny, with an, you mentioned Inconvenient Truth. Um, when I made the movie years ago, I got to be part of making a movie that, you know, it was part of creating a movement. It helped to educate, it helped to inform. Um, but at the same time, it was a good movie, it was a documentary. And uh, it's a similar thing here where uh, Trayvon and Martin, who they co-directed the movie together. Um, first of all, they just worked so well together and they worked so well with Joey. Um, Joey just brought a humanity to the, to the character, which was there on the script, but he brought something, um, you know, Joey, I have to say, I might have said this many times to you, but you brought such a, a beautiful um, presence and, uh, and a character that we are so sympathetic to. Um, so uh, that humanity, along with the story, along with you know, they're just, they're the beautiful direction. Um, I think created this, this movie. And yes, I think it's both, 
in an odd way, very entertaining, and it, and also carries a you know a very strong and important message. Yeah, there's no question about it. We're talking right now, Lawrence Bender, a famed producer, Joey Badass, terrific in the film called Two Distant Strangers. I hope it is nominated for a Best Academy Award Oscar nominated short. Joey, the, your performance is terrific. As Lawrence was saying, understated, chill guy, very likable guy, just has a has a rendezvous with the lady, wants to go out, feeling pretty good about his life, and then all of a sudden has this interaction with the police officer, which ends terribly, and you keep repeating the same day over and over. Tell me about the cast. I, I thought the, the woman, uh, you, the girl you're with, I thought she was terrific, and I thought the cop was terrific. I mean, well cast. What was it like working with them? Yeah, um, you know, shout out to Zaria and um, Andrew. Uh, you know, when I work in, in, in film, I feel like I'm always a product of, uh, you know, my, 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 my colleagues. Right. And, um, you know, Zaria and Andrew, they were able to bring something to the film that like, you know, only just helped me be better, helped me shine in, in, in you know, my own right. Uh, it just they just made it much easier. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there were some energies that were. Uh, extremely palatable that that you know we're, were easy to get along with we had chemistry from day one the synergy was there uh you know especially for like uh the dynamic between uh andrew's character and mine uh you know the <laughs> the the scene in the police car and things yeah. like that uh that 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 was uh <laughs> those were magical moments that were made because you know the synergy was real there the connection the chemistry it, it was all there yeah, I thought, again, I don't want to get away from people, but that, that car ride was great because you're starting to feel as an audience going, see, we can get to that point. We can have empathy. We can understand right. what the other side is coming from, that not all cops are bad and not all young African-American men are, are criminals. And that what the story really showed is this is how quickly these things can change and that hopefully if we have communication, things can turn around. Now, obviously, I'm not going to give away what happens, but you, you start to get led down that path. That's really smart about the short is that you think you've got it figured out, and yet it takes you in a different direction. What's your hope? If someone says to you, Joey, hey, listen, what's your point of making this? Beyond being this acclaimed rapper who's showing off his acting skills and telling a cool story, what is your hope if a law enforcement officer watches this film? Well, you know, my hope is uh, for people like law enforcement off, uh, officers and stuff like that is, is definitely to educate, is to, um, you know, give them almost a, a new perspective. Cause I feel like a lot of uh, miscommunication comes from just lack of understanding uh, another side apart from your own, you know what I mean? And uh, you know, for me, that is my overall mission with like, you know, playing this character in this film is to help spread the awareness and, and to help expand the conversation and to, you know, keep the conversation going in a way where we could all be open to each other's perspectives. Well, that's really well stated. Lawrence, for you, what's the goal? If somebody walks with the two distant strangers, what would you love to have them say? I would love, A, for them to tell their friends and everyone else to go see the movie because, well, one, of course, you make a movie you want people to see it, but two, uh, the more people see it, the more conversations create, as Joey just said. And the whole idea is to create conversation. We are at a really a time in our history, which is the greatest civil rights movement in the history of America is happening right now. Um, or happened at least during the summer when George, George Floyd was murdered. And, um, you know, we want, to be a, we want to just do what we can to help push this ball up the hill, man, just to get people talking and to, get pe and to, and to and help change, just help make change. 
to that end, Lawrence, where can people see Two Distant Strangers? If you're watching or listening right now, you go, I can't wait to see it. What can we tell them? Well, right now, there's only one place to see it, which is on the <laughs> Academy link. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're in this, it has not been released uh, commercially yet. Uh, so we are going to start talking to buyers and we will start uh, looking at someone to hopefully buy it and release it commercially. So right now, the only place you can watch it is if you're a voting member. Hopefully that all changes and, uh, and we sell the movie, which I think we will, and, uh, and everyone will get to see it. No, absolutely. That is definitely a promise that I hope is, ends up being kept. Joey, for you, as I said, you're obviously an acclaimed rapper. Uh, how much of this do you want to keep doing? Is, is acting something you'd like to pursue? Uh, is rapping your first love? How do you try to balance your different artistic pursuits? Well, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a, a Russian proverb that I live by, and it goes, you chase two rabbits, you won't catch either one. So the way that I look at, uh, you know, music versus acting is music is always my first love. It is literally my bread and butter. And, um, you know, acting is something more of like a hobby. It's something that I love to do. It's a, it's a way that I enjoy expressing myself. And, um, you know, I enjoy carrying on about it naturally, like as it comes. It's not anything I would say I necessarily pursue. It's just all about timing and, um, you know, just finding the right moments, being in, in the right place at the right time. And what resonates with, you know, the story that I'm already trying to tell through my music. To that point, Joey, how many days did it take in terms of rehearsal, prep, and then actually shooting the film? How much of a commitment was it for you? Um, I want to say overall, just under 10 days. Wow. You know, um, we shot it in five. We had about, uh, I want to say like two off-site meetings and then three rehearsal days. (laughs) Right, Lawrence? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and, and, and then that was it. The rest was history. It was COVID rehearsal, man. We were in the backyard. Right. Working, rehearsing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Quick and dirty. Just get it done. You went, you guys are not messing around. You clearly knew what you were trying to do. By, uh, Lawrence, the, way, I just, by the way, like, yeah. if I could continue about my uh, acting career this way and, and get things done in less than 10 days, <laughs> <sign> me up. <laughs> I'll be here for a long time. <laughs> yeah, there's no question you will. It's all about being efficient. I got a small hole here. I can knock this out. Maybe it's a small cameo in a feature film. All good. I can do it. Uh, two Distant Strangers. Once again, hopefully it's going to be available soon. I cannot wait to people to check it out. Lawrence, as we close, as I said, I say your name to people and immediately they think of Pulp Fiction. I got to ask, give me a Pulp Fiction story. Anything you got. Cannes Film Festival, <laughs> something funny about Tarantino, Cassian Travolta, whatever you want. Just give me a great Pulp Fiction story. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm not sure I could tell you any Pulp Fiction stories that have not been told. I'll tell you one Pulp Fiction story, um, but it's not really a Pulp Fiction story. So we were all <laughs> in Cannes together. Uh, it was all the actors and Quentin and myself, and we were with Roger Ebert at the uh, Hotel de Cat. Uh, and we were with his wife, Chaz Ebert, who's still in Chicago and is, uh, as we know, Roger passed, but Chaz is this wonderful black woman. And, um, and we're sitting at the Pulp Fiction table and it's kind of like uh, talk to Roger Ebert, who at that time was like the God of, you know, reviewing stuff on TV. And Chaz looks at me. I had another movie in Cannes. It's called Fresh. Oh yeah. Uh, oh Bo- wow. Boaz Yaquin? Yeah. Boaz Yaquin, who's my dear, dear friend, who's actually quarantining also with me at my house right now. <laughs> and Boaz, so I produced, I produced and Boaz directed Fresh, wrote and directed Fresh. 
And that's what, that was in director's fortnight. And Chaz, Chaz Ebert, who I'm sitting next to, leans over. She says, Lawrence, I love Pulp Fiction, but I loved Fresh. (laughs) 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 We're going to get along. (laughs) (laughs) You can like, see that, Quentin? She really loves the other movie I did. Don't forget about that. (laughs) Fresh is a great, one of my best friends, Gabby. (laughs) Joey, have you seen Fresh? One of my best friends, Gabby Richards. Fresh is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Lawrence, Lawrence, that's actually news to me. You know, Fresh was actually one of my favorite movies growing up. So yeah. I, I had no idea that you produced that. So. Who was who the young actor in it? Lawrence Sean something? Sean Nelson? Something like that? Sean Nelson. His name? Wow. You yeah. Good, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, listen, look at this. We start with Two Distant Strangers, and now people are going to go see Fresh. This is how these things work. Uh, Joey Badass, great stuff. Lawrence Bender, I can't thank you guys enough for joining me here at Cinephile. Two Distant Strangers. People, check it out. It's awesome. It's impactful. I hope Academy members recognize it, which, as we all know, gives the film a real push. Stay safe, gentlemen, and congrats on really making a special film. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Sad news here, Cicely Tyson passes away, and also Cloris Leachman, the decorated actress of stage and screen, best known for her role as the annoyingly perfect landlady Phyllis Lindstrom on The Mary Tyler Moore Show, has passed away. Age of 94, seven decades in the business, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, over 20 Emmy nominations, and nine wins. That's more trophies than any other television performer in history. Think about that. If I'd asked you, you would have thought, oh, maybe Julia Louis-Dreyfus, right? Lucille Ball. No, Cloris Leachman. More Emmys than anybody. It's amazing. I mean, competing alongside back in 1971, her performance in The Last Picture Show, which is a film I've got to watch again. When I saw it when I was younger, I've I, got to be honest, I found it a little overrated. But my buddy Ben Mankwitz tells me it's incredible. I know it's one of those films in the 70s people rave about. Peter Bogdanovich, early film of his, Jeff Bridges. Uh, she was up for Best Supporting Actress and was up against Ellen Burstyn and Margaret Barbara Harris, Margaret Layton. First time in the history of the Oscars, an entire category was filled with first-time nominees. And Leachman actually went on to win the top prize. Uh, her most iconic role, Phyllis Lindstrom, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, an incredible show of the 70s. During her Mary Tyler Moore Show, she would originate one of comedy's most cherished punchlines, a Frau Blucher in Mel Brooks' 1974 classic, Young Frankenstein. Our boy Rick Passmore, uh, the other day I saw him posting on Instagram in honor of Cloris Leachman after she passed away. He rewatched Young Frankenstein. As Ricky pointed out, it's not just a hysterical movie with great one-liners, great performances, obviously. Gene Wilder is very funny. Peter Boyle. Uh, Gene Hackman, actually, in an uncredited role. But even the directing. like Mel Brooks is really doing a great job with filming that because he's doing an homage to these schlock horror films, but he's also making a, a really kind of funny, artistic movie. Cloris Leachman, hell of a run, Joe. Yeah, incredible career. Most Emmy wins, that, that's absolutely astounding. My, my first introduction to her, Adnan, was through Comedy Central Roasts, and she had to be in her early to mid-80s at those points, just getting hammered by these professional comedians. But she would go up on stage, timing still was still there, so funny, took everything in stride, her jokes were fantastic, and you know what, what can you say about Young Frankenstein that hasn't been said. Her, such a great movie, and she'll be missed for sure. Yeah, I, I want to watch it again when I get a couple hours here because uh, it's so funny. Young Frankenstein. Uh, it's Frankenstein. What? It literally has got a hump. Igor has a hump on the wrong side. I mean, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> uh, a couple of other stories here. Army Hammer, I mentioned before, 
I don't care about the cannibal stuff. Are you still going to be in The Godfather or what? Well, I have my answer. He will no longer star in the upcoming Paramount Plus series, The Offer, which tells the behind-the-scenes story of the making of The Godfather. This was reported by Variety. It was announced early December. He was going to play Al Ruddy, who was the producer, 10-episode series. Hammer is now out. He was also out of uh, this rom-com with Jennifer Lopez. Um, this is after these Instagram direct messages supposedly written by him that were leaked online. The messages describe graphic sexual fantasies, including cannibalism. So he's out there, and Steven Spielberg saying this, he's confident that movie theaters will return. I certainly hope so, Steven. Here's a quote from Mr. Spielberg. In a movie theater, you watch movies with the significant others in your life, but also in the company of strangers. That's the magic we experience when we go out to see a movie or a play or a concert or a comedy act. We don't know who all these people are sitting around us, but when the experience makes us laugh or cry or cheer or contemplate, and then when the lights come up and we leave our seats, the people with whom we head out into the real world don't feel like complete strangers anymore. That really hits the nail on the head here, Joe. It's a communal aspect. That's why I think movies will always be back. I don't know when it's going to be. I'm hoping sometime this summer, September, October, maybe it's 2022. But the next time somebody says to me, will movie theaters die? I'm going to say no. Will streaming continue to thrive? Yes. Will people take the opportunity? Of course they will. But there are still going to be people who love going to the movies. Why can't I do both? Why can't I stream and also go to the movies? That's what I think the world will be. I 100% agree. You know, I look at it almost like sports. It, it, the the NFL will get fans back in the stands. Baseball will get fans back in the stands. Horror movies are scarier when you're in a theater watching with other people. Comedies are funnier when you're in a theater watching it with other people. So I don't. I think he's right on the money. I don't think it'll ever die, and I think the movie industry will come back. Exactly. That's your entertainment news, Mount Rushmore, right now. Mount Rushmore. All right, we had a suggestion here from Mount Rushmore, Dustin Hoffman movies. Um, in the midst of the Me Too movement, I know Hoffman was accused of, I don't know the exact behavior, but I think what I read was inappropriate on set, maybe some bullying, aggressiveness. I've told the story before here in Cinephile. You know, when he was making uh, a film with Meryl Streep, Kramer versus Kramer, apparently off air, he was taunting her about the death of John Cazale. John Cazale, one of those great actors that was gone too soon, Fredo, for many of you in The Godfather, and also I loved him in Dog Day Afternoon. Apparently Hoffman, true method acting, right? That's a husband and wife who are estranged, they're supposed to hate each other. I'll never forget reading that. He was taunting her about the death of John Cazale because Meryl Streep, I believe, was engaged to Cazale when he died. So I've already realized Dustin Hoffman, probably not the nicest guy in the world, so when stories came out that maybe there was some other stuff that he was doing as well, let's just say his career has become quieter. Uh, Joe and I are both big John Oliver fans. I know John Oliver took it to Hoffman somewhere. I can't remember the exact uh, area, but if you Google it, you'll see John Oliver really going after Dustin Hoffman at like a Q&A somewhere. So he's been a little quieter here as far as movies are concerned, but there's no denying back in the day Dustin Hoffman was bringing it, notably in his first breakthrough film, which was called The Graduate. As Ben Braddock I think that was really an archetype for so many young men who were trying to figure themselves out, trying to figure out their way in life, caught up in this affair. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. Plastics. Uh, perfectly cast. Listen, he was kind of a nebbish. He himself says, I was a particularly goofy-looking Jewish kid who's all of a sudden trying to be a leading man. That wasn't happening. But the 70s saw guys like him and Al Pacino and Bob De Niro, who were not conventional leading men, 
because they were shorter and didn't have like, you know, the big, they didn't look like Burt Lancaster for God's sakes, but these guys were great actors. So what the hell? Dustin Hoffman on sheer talent is going to be a leading man. And you certainly saw that in The Graduate. It's tough to annoy Midnight Cowboy. I mean, he's just amazing as Ratso Rizzo, um, a film that was very risque and avant-garde, rated X, won Best Picture, his relationship with John Voight. Voight's this hustler, and uh, Ratso Rizzo's literally just a rat. That, that's who uh, Hoffman's character is, a con man, so to speak. But he also uh, has some uh, heart to him as well. Then you get some other good, listen, Straw Dogs is a great film. I'd love to include it. I can't include it in the Rushmore. I think Lenny is really underrated. He plays a stand-up comic, obviously, Lenny Bruce. I thought he was really good in that film. American Buffalo is one of my favorite plays. David Mamet, he adapted that. But the next film I'm going to go with is Rain Man. Again, iconic performance. I didn't know anything about autism when I saw it. I was 10 years old, and uh, I thought from whatever I've read and seen, it was a very accurate representation of autism. Uh, we all remember the 15 minutes to Wapner counting all the toothpicks. I, I can't think of anybody else but Dustin Hoffman in that film. And for the fourth, I'm going to go with Wag the Dog, uh, an incredible satire. David Mamet co-wrote it. It stars Bob De Niro, and Hoffman's amazing. He was nominated for Best Actor for the film. Stanley Motz, who's basically sending up legendary producer Bob Evans. If you look at Robert Evans in real life and Dustin Hoffman, the spray tan, the glasses, the hair, that's who he is. They're inventing a war against Albania. Take a little heat off the president. And I thought, for a guy who, you know, for a lot of dramatic films, it really shows the comic interest of Dustin Hoffman, how good he is at doing comedy. So, it's, regrettably, I'm not including uh, Marathon Man, Kramer versus Kramer, Tootsie, which this is bothering me that I did not find a way to get Tootsie in there, but he's so funny at Tootsie. Uh, Dick Tracy, small role as Mumbles. Uh, he's also in some other movies along the way. I mean, listen, Finding Neverland is not really my cup of tea. Meet the Fockers, I'm sure many of you enjoy because it is funny. Just for the title alone, Mr. McGorham's Wonder Emporium. you got Little Fockers. I mean, Kung Fu Panda, for God's sakes. But I'm going to go with The Graduate, Midnight Cowboy, Rain Man, Wag the Dog, and honorable mentions to Tootsie and Straw Dogs. Joe? That is a strong list. First off, I will agree with you on The Graduate. Um, that Exactly what you said. Kind of an archetype for young men trying to find themselves. Um, I'm also going to go with Rain Man as well. Him uh, opposite Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise in an unlikable role. I think that might have been one of his first ones. And I always think of Tropic Thunder when I think of Rain Man on that note, too. Um, I'm also... I, I, I push this movie a lot whenever it's available for these Mount Rushmore's, but there's a reason for it, and it's because it's one of my favorite all-time movies, and that's All the President's Men, replaced Carl Bernstein, and fantastic conspiracy political thriller. And then finally... This is out of left field, but kind of like how you like Wag the Dog for his comedic take in that. Um, I'm going to have Hook as my last movie, where wow. it's um, starred opposite of Robin Williams. It's my favorite Robin Williams film ever made, period. And him as Captain Hook, it's so fantastic in it. I recommend it. It holds up all the practical sets and effects. It's, I think, a testament to why it still holds up to today. So my four are The Graduate, Hook, All the President's Men, and Rain Man. But also shout out to the movie Chef. They came out in 2014. He plays the uh, uh, restaurant boss in that. And that's just a feel-good movie with Jon Favreau. But those are my four, Adnan. 
I also love Chef. I like that Favreau went back to his indie roots. He's obviously a big-time director now with the likes of Iron Man and Lion King, but Chef was a good little movie. I still find out far, hard-fetched, far-fetched, excuse me, that Sofia Vergara was married to him. But whatever. Hey, man, you're making the movie. You can have a gorgeous Colombian in love with you. I have no issue with that. Uh, I also love, speaking of comedic performances, Sleepers, which is a really dark, disturbing movie with Jason Patrick and Brad Pitt and Robert De Niro. But Hoffman's great. It's Shakespearean what he does. He shows up, and he's like the bumbling lawyer. Um, it's actually really well done. He plays Danny Snyder, and it's what Shakespeare would do, right? Really tragic role. Well, here's the comic foil. He's the comic foil in Sleepers, and I honestly tell you, he's one of the things I remember most about that movie, which I think is has its ups and downs, and also Barney's version. Paul Giamatti won a Golden Globe, one of my favorite actors. That's an adaptation of uh, a great Montreal author, Mordecai Richler. If you're Canadian, you know the work of Mordecai Richler, and Hoffman plays Paul Giamatti's dad in the movie. He's really funny. He dies in a rub and tuck, for God's sakes, but he's he's so good playing this uh, lecherous old man. So, uh, listen, it's an incredible career of Dustin Hoffman and lots of great choices. My wife's a big fan of Hook, so she'll appreciate Joe giving some love to that movie. I like the first shot, the way Spielberg introduces him. I always like when you get a good introduction. You know, give us a hook, give us a hook. They're all chanting, and then the camera pushes in, and Hoffman turns around and he's got that crazy hair and mustache. So he's definitely uh, memorable in that movie. All right, you want it over an hour? You got over an hour of Cinephile. Thanks so much to everyone for checking it out. Big time thanks to Lawrence Bender and Joey Badass. Look out for Two Distant Strangers. You are one going to see it. I think it's 28 minutes in length. So anybody who gets scared about length, listen, 28 minutes, you've got time to watch that movie, and it's certainly impactful. And both those guys knocked it out of the park. And a big time thank you to Ben Lyons, as always. Ben's the guy who hooked us up. He uh, got me in touch with the PR people for the film, and that's how we got the interview to happen. So... Definitely appreciate Ben. Appreciate all of you listening. Uh, lots more coming down the pike. Minari, which is the one film I was missing in terms of awards contenders. As far as, you know, the top 10 lists, I finally got it in the mail. So I cannot wait to watch Minari. That's going to be the feature review next time here in Cinephile. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to my man Joe and all of you out there. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance.
Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.